Well, good morning. good morning. Welcome to our class. Our clock every week seems to get one minute behind time, so I just have to deal with that. Uh, I want to begin with a quick word on methodology. My methodology. Now, who can tell me how many verses Philemon has in total? Let me check. Yes, we can all check that in our Bibles. It's uh, 20... Hmm, 25 verses? There are 25 verses in Philemon. This is like the 8th or ninth class lecture on this book. And we are still in the first few verses of it. What's the deal? Are we going to be in this book forever? Can't we ever just move on? Why are we so slow? Ah, let me address this for a second. See... What I'm trying to do here, and I explained this, I think, in the beginning, or even before we started, this is a deep dive. Uh, we are looking at this not in the sense that when I read these few words from Paul, that he is deliberately thinking of eight lectures worth of stuff in one sentence. I don't think Paul is necessarily purposely doing that at every single juncture or junction. What I am doing, though, is all of the, the themes that are brought up, the ideas that are brought up, I'm then turning it into a bit more of a systematic look at that idea. So this week, he's going to bring up prayer. He only says in verse 4 that, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. If I'm just focused on Philemon itself, I could talk about that verse for about a minute. And then we'd be done and we'd move on. But I'm taking that phrase, always remember you in my prayers. And I'm going to draw out then the theme that we should be constantly praying for each other, what the prayers are for, what hinders our prayers. Like you see how I then I'm taking a systematic look at it and explaining each of these different ideas and topics as we go. So I'm essentially teaching a mini form of systematic theology through one letter you're getting a lot of different biblical doctrine in these lectures than just, I'm going to stick exactly to what Paul is saying to Philemon and not go beyond it, not expand on anything. If I did that, yeah, we could be wrapped up this pretty quickly. But I see a lot of value in expanding on different types of ideas and doctrine where then you can see just through one section in one letter of Paul, we end up talking about ten different parts of doctrine. I find that very exciting and a very worthwhile way to learn how scripture connects together. Um, so that's a, that's a word on my methodology, why it's taking a long time and why it'll take a while yet to go. Uh, is because we're taking a holistic look at a lot of these ideas as opposed to just a literal grammatical look at it. Um, so if you have any questions about that, we can talk about it after. But that is a word on the pacing. Now, another thing I want to say, this was brought up uh, by a couple people. I know that this class can, can be a little mentally, uh, you got to be engaged. Like it, We go into a lot of stuff. And I think it could be valuable if we take a couple weeks off. Uh, I'm going to go this week and next week. We're going to finish up verses 4 to 6, and then, or 4 to 7. And then we're going to take a few weeks and do something a little bit more... Uh, 
discussion-based kind of in your face. I want to rile you up. We're going to we're going to talk about just some lighter stuff where we can talk to each other a little bit more as opposed to me doing lectures uh, and very little discussion. So we're going to take a break from Philemon after next week, just for a few weeks, uh, maybe two to four weeks. Uh, we'll do some fun stuff and then we'll go back to Philemon. Does that sound okay? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> David's pumping the fist, so all right. Thank you. Now, page 14 of your notes, I almost got through everything I wanted to say on verses 1 through 3. We left off, I only had a minute to talk about the nature of the church. You know how it says, uh, the church in your house at the end of verse 2. This was the way that you did Christianity in the first century. There, there was official persecution. If you were in a church, you were in somebody's house. You didn't have a nice big tabernacle, a nice big building that the state protects. Nothing of the sort. It was house churches. Now, some people, there are modern movements that want to teach that our churches should model that. That all of our churches should be in homes. And my argument last week, I didn't get to, get to expand much, uh, which is here in your notes, is that we are bound to the uh, nature of the church, God's family coming together in worship, but we are not bound to their specific cultural model of church, the house church. I Put yourself in, a, in the head of a first century Christian. You're being persecuted. You have to meet secretly in homes, and you get to see the years, or the century of the 2000s, and you see churches dotting the landscape. They're protected by the state. We don't have to go run and hide. We get to worship freely. These type, you, you get to see that. Put yourself in their shoes. They would rejoice that the Lord answered their prayers. They would have prayed for a day like that where they could have worshipped freely. And so I think it's a little bit irresponsible to look at the first century church and be like, all of our church buildings, these are, these are horrible things. It's a horrible institution. It's just so worldly. We need to go back into houses, house church only. I don't, I don't think that that is a very tenable argument or idea. So the kingdom of God, uh, the other idea is the way Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, it continues to grow. It's the mustard seed that grows to become the biggest plant in the garden. So if it started out as a mustard seed, Christ is there and they're persecuted, they're scattered, they're in small groups and homes. That makes sense for a small mustard seed, but it's going to continue to grow. It's not, going to sh it's not going back into the small size of mustard seed. We're growing and growing and growing. And, and so it's only... Uh, should be expected that the church was going to expand as it did, and the Lord did expand it. Um, so it fits well with what Christ said the kingdom is like. All right, point seven on page 14. Uh, this is referring to verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Read almost any one of Paul's letters. He is going to say that. Grace and peace. He constantly says this idea. And I, I learned this from a German scholar, Jack Mueller. He said that this greeting, we can skip by it. We can go by a little bit too quickly. But grace and peace is actually doing something a little deeper than what meets the eye. Now, what does the Hebrew word shalom mean? Does anybody know? Peace. Peace is the idea that we usually associate with it, but it's not, the, not a direct, perfect translation. To have shalom, 
to a Jew, the idea is more completeness, wholeness. Your whole inner being is totally at peace. So it's not just like, oh, we're at peace with Iraq. That's not shalom. Shalom is you have deep and abiding peace with your spouse, with your neighbor, with uh, the nations around you, in, in your relationship with the Lord. Like everything is in total wholeness and unity and completeness. That's the idea of shalom. And that idea is all over the Old Testament. The Jews want Shalom. They were supposed to pray for shalom. And uh, it's all over the Proverbs as well. And so when you say, peace from God our Father, that is a very appropriate prayer to a Jew. Because they were seeking each other's shalom. They were seeking the total peace of one another, the wholeness of each other. We already get the idea of Peace way back in Genesis chapter 15, uh, 14. And in Genesis 14, Abram, he's going to meet an interesting guy, Melchizedek. Where's Melchizedek from? Do you remember? Salem. Salem. The word for Salem there is extremely close to the word shalom. Actually, it's almost... Uh, it is probably the exact same word that they are using there, different spelling. We drop the H in the transliteration. He was king of Salem. Now, Salem is the idea, again, of peace. And when Abram comes across Melchizedek, he's not a Jew. Melchizedek's not a Jew. And we don't know where he comes from. We don't know his parents. We don't know his lineage. That's why the author of Hebrews brings us up as a, pre, as a comparing it to Christ and all that. He comes and Moses, well, in Genesis chapter 14, it says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, verse 18, brought out bread and wine. Those are important Christian symbols, bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So God is working with non-Jews already back in Genesis 14. We know that people could have special relationship with the Lord. They could be saved outside of the Jewish covenant people. And the, the covenant with Abram was only came after this anyway. So the Lord was still working with other people at this time, even non-Jews. Uh, Melchizedek was a priest of God. And in 19, he blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. And there we get the principle of the tithe. He's going to tithe to the priest most high, king of Salem, the place of peace. And that Salem, that word there, we end up getting that word show up in another city later on. What city is that? Jerusalem. So the Salem that Melchizedek is coming from is almost certainly uh, at or around Jerusalem, which would come later on. Do you know what Jerusalem means by any chance? City of David. They call it that as a title, but it's not the translation of the words. It's two words, Jerusalem. So you know the Salem part. That's your whole peace, your total uh, completeness. 
and the Jeru, at first I thought it was house, like the house of peace, but that, that wasn't it. Actually, the, the Jeru is almost like a saying. It's like, it means two things. They will know or they will see. That's what it means. So Jeru, they will know Salem, total peace. They will know total peace. They will see total peace. That was going to be the city of David, the city where Christ is, ends up being executed. He's already prophesying it in the earliest of times. They will know my peace. I will open this up to all. Because he's going to restrict the covenant to Abram and Abram's descendants. But also through Abram, all the families of the world are blessed. And so we already get in Genesis 14, God working through Gentiles, working through non-Jews, but his Peace, his shalom, is going to go through the Jews, even though other people can still be saved. And when Christ comes, they will all know. It's not just going to be the Jews. They all will know and will see this peace, Jew and Gentile. This idea of shalom, this idea of peace, was very central to a Jew's identity. They all wanted it. And that was going to expand to include the Gentiles. And speaking of the Gentiles, this term grace uh, was a standard Greek greeting to one another. Now, it wasn't the same idea that we think about grace, like, you know, God's abundant mercy and, and grace towards us. It's, it's not really that. It was more like, uh, even Dylan and I were joking about how we say, hey, how are you? But like, you're not really asking, how are you? Like, when you say grace to you, it was kind of just like, you know, things go well with you. Like, it's just Good luck. Like, it wasn't a very spiritual thing, but it was a very common way for a Greek person to greet one another. And so in the New Testament times, when Christ comes on the picture, the church is expanding into the Gentiles. Now they're getting the shalom that the Jews had. Uh, this idea of grace is taking on an elevated meaning as well. This is more the idea that we are thinking. God's sovereign kindness to you. Like, I want shalom, your total completeness, and God's sovereign kindness to you. Grace and peace, Jew and Gentile. That is the, one of the deeper ideas that is going on in that greeting. Um, and we know that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. But he himself is a Jew. So he's, got, he's the perfect guy for this. He comes from the Jews, so he, he knows this idea of shalom and, and peace, but he's the guy for the, for the Gentiles. He knows the, the conversation and, and grace. They have this idea of grace, and he's the same one who goes up to Mars Hill and says, I see that you have this uh, altar to the unknown God, and he interacts with the Gentiles all the time. And so he knows this idea of grace and, he, and elevates it with the Christian perspective of it. And he wants all of the people he writes to, to have the total shalom of God and God's sovereign kindness upon them. It's a really much better greeting than, hey, what's up, bro? How you doing, man? <laughs> this is a little bit more elevated than that. Okay, so peace and grace. That, uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice way to... To greet somebody. Verse 4 through 7. This is the next section. It is the second section of this letter. And again, we are going to follow our basic outline here. Structure and themes. And then characters and setting. And then notes and application. 
Let's start with our chiasm. I left out the chiasm on the table last week. Probably most of you still have it. If you don't, well, you can just see it in the text when I show it. The chiasm, the part of the chiasm that we're at here, in verse 4, Paul is praying for Philemon or mentioning his prayers. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. The reverse side of that, or um, the prime side, you can call it, is verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So back in verse 4, Paul is thanking him for his prayers, and down in verse 22, he's going to mention again, by your prayers, those ones that I'm, uh, this idea of praying before, uh, it's coming back again. I thank my God when I remember you in my prayers, but I hope through your prayers I'm going to come to you. That we pray for each other. And then the second part of the chiasm here is verses 5 through 7. Uh, Paul's talking about and he's commending Philemon's hospitality, how much he uh, is caring for people, his love, his faith, all of this type of stuff. And that idea again comes up in 22. Prepare a guest room for me. So that You've been showing hospitality to the saints. You've been showing love. Uh, prepare a guest room for me. Here's another opportunity. You can show some love. You can show some hospitality. I already know that you do it. So prepare a room for me. So that idea is coming up uh, from verses 4 through 7. It's repeated, the ideas, in verse 22. That's our chiasm. And now we get to the covenantal structure. Probably some of us don't remember the steps of the covenantal structure. Maybe we can just, for those who haven't been here, we can remind ourselves what it is. What was step one of covenantal structure? You remember? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. What is part two? This should be easy. Mediation. Mediation. What is part three? Now I'm going to go to your memory box. Stipulation. Stipulation or law. What is part four? Sanctions. sanctions. What is the other idea of sanctions to make that easier to understand? What, what? Blessing and cursing. That's, that's exactly right. And what is part five? Succession. Carolyn, you have been paying attention. <laughs> I've got it right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So we showed how verses 1 through 3, this is a covenantal structure, which just meant this is the way, when God makes covenants with people in Scripture, he does this. You, you go into the different accounts, you'll see all five parts of these, and we took like two classes to talk about this. We showed how verses 1 through 3 it corresponds with so, the sovereignty part of making a covenant. You're introducing the sovereigns. Uh, now verses 4 through 7 is going to be section number 2. We are in the mediation side of the covenantal structure. Paul always does this. He's going to introduce the sovereigns, and then he is going to get into, I have been praying for you. I thank you because I heard a good report about you. Epaphras came and he said a good word about you. Timothy, you have been this and that. And he always goes into this historical prologue, like, I'm going to thank you for stuff. i God has been merciful to us. And he always does this. And I find that a very nice way to go about things. Some people talk about uh, in counseling, you kind of do the compliment sandwich. If you have to have a conversation with somebody, you start out by being nice and saying something nice about the person, what you appreciate. And then you get into uh, the issue. And then you close off by saying, oh, no, but I appreciate you because blank, blank, blank. So positive. Then you get into your stuff. 
and then you end on the positive again. Uh, I don't think compliment sandwich is the official terminology for it, but it's the one that I gave it. But Paul clearly all wants to do this before he gets into stuff. Even before Corinthians. Remember the church of Corinth? Was that a very functional church? They had a lot of issues. Now, they were still doing Lord's Supper, but they're, they're getting drunk at it. They're leaving people out, and they're fighting. and So it was pretty dysfunctional. Um, and even for them, you go to Corinthians, and he's like, I thank God for you because ABC. He's always finding things to be thankful about. I think that's really important for us as believers, too. We can get frustrated with other people. We can. Even here in the church, we can get very frustrated with each other. But can you find something to be thankful for them for? Has the Lord redeemed them? Has the Lord used them in some way in this place or in their own family? Is there nothing commendable in them? If you can't find it, if you can't find anything, there is probably a bitterness in there that you may not be very aware of. But there's always something that we can be thankful to each other for. And I've had this taught to me before too. You can't stay angry at somebody who you're praying for. I have been very angry at other people. And I usually stay angry when I don't bring them before the Lord, when I don't pray for them. But when I pray for them, I remember that the Lord has saved them and redeemed them too, if, if I'm talking to, with a believer. And that they have children. And they have a sacred responsibility to them. And they serve at their church. I don't agree with everything, but there's always stuff to be thankful for. And once I start doing that, once I take them before the Lord, it's hard to be as bitter. You then start working for their well-being, for their shalom even. And not so much that they would fall from their pedestal, that they would get their dues, that God would smite them and I would be vindicated. No, when you start praying for them, you stop being so bitter about them. So Paul, he has some harsh things to say. And by harsh, I don't mean it's unmerited. <laughs> he has merited harsh things to say to some of the churches. But he's going to thank God for them first. He's going to make sure he's, if he's going to say something, he's prayed for them. Mediation. In the, so, and that is the idea of mediation. Like when we are praying for each other, we are mediating for each other. And let's talk about that for a second. In the Old Testament, could you go to God yourself? Could you do your sacrifice by yourself? No, you could not. Could you touch the Ark of the Covenant? No, you would die. Going in the holy place, nah-uh-uh-uh, because we're filthy. Even if your body doesn't have mud all over it, we are internally filthy. We cannot go before God. We are not pure. We can't do that. And so God set a system in place where the priests were the ones who could take your sacrifice. He's either going to go up into the steps, which is, a, yeah, where they're going to go up the steps. He's going to lay it on the altar. He's going to slay that animal. And he, that animal is essentially atoning in a limited way for your, in a temporary way for your sin. You could not do that yourself. You needed a priest to do it. A priest was a mediator between you and God because you could not do it yourself. Even the priest needed to have people mediate for him. Even the high priest 
One day a year, he gets to go inside the most holy place and do the, the day of atonement for the people. And when he goes in, he has to make a sacrifice for himself first because he's unclean. Everyone's unclean before God. Nobody can just walk up and say, God, look at the life I've lived. You better let me in. Nuh -uh. No, you're, we're filthy. We don't get to go before God. We need somebody cleaner than us to let us go before God. And that was also the idea why the animal had to be healthy and it couldn't be crippled and all these other things. Because something clean needs to, needs to be the penalty there. So you needed to take your sacrifice to the altar and you had to wait. You had to just wait for this thing to be done. In the New Covenant, though, there's a doctrine that the Reformers helpfully defined for us called the priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers. Now, we don't wear funny hats and sacrifice animals. But there is an el a sense in which we are all priests together now. And what sense is that, that we are all priests? Direct communication, approach, access. We have access to the Lord now. And we have it, of course, through our perfect, finished sacrifice of Christ, of course. So in the New Covenant, we are all priests that we all get to go before God. You're not standing on the outside of the court anymore. You don't have to confess your sins to a mediator who then will absolve you of your sin and now you're good again until you commit more of those sins. Or if you commit a mortal sin, look out. Not even a mediator can save you then. No, that's not the idea. We all get access to God and we don't need any special person to clear us before God. On earth, that is. Christ is the one who cleared us before God. So, we are priests in the sense that we all get access to God. But there's another way in which we are priests as well. And that is in the sense that we mediate. The priests were always mediating. We mediate before God on behalf of each other. Now, the idea here is not you don't get access to God unless I do this for you. That, that, that's gone. That's gone. Finished. Sacrifice to Christ. But we still have the responsibility to mediate for each other before God. And we do that through our prayers. Is the Lord sovereign? Can the Lord do as he wills? But can the Lord set the system that he will act when you pray for it? Will God sometimes not act unless we pray for it? I think yeah, absolutely. Can the Lord act without us praying for it? Yeah. Of, of course. But the Lord sets up means. Means is just is our part. We have a part to play in this. We are supposed to be praying for one another. And I think we won't get a full picture of this until we're in glory. But we will get an idea of how much we got how much was accomplished, how much peace we had at a time in our lives because somebody was praying for us. And we probably didn't get it if nobody was praying for us. It is a very important thing that we pray for one another, especially those who go through significant uh, crises in life. We pray during the pastoral prayer for those who's got family members who are sick, uh, Carlos, who's basically 
Uh, his back is so bad that he, he can't really move much. Like we bring these things before God. We are mediating on behalf of each other. Can, can Carlos and all these people go to the Lord themselves? Yeah, they can. But the Lord has so designed things that he wants us to pray for each other and he will act in response to prayer. Is there a verse that you can think of that says that God acts on behalf of people's prayer in the New Testament? Oh, Carolyn, you are a rock star this morning. James chapter 5. James is really close to Philemon. Just pass Hebrews and uh, James chapter 5. Look what it says. Now, my translation says it a little bit differently. but I learned it in the King James decades ago. King James, yes. I, I will keep my ESV for now. Verse 16, though. James 5, 16. Therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I don't know about to you, but that sounds to me like some people's healing is contingent upon being prayed for. That you may be healed. If you did not confess and pray for each other, is it really a wonder that you're so bitter inside? That you can't move on from things easily? That you're so uptight? That you're even sick all the time? Now, we know from the story of Job that the Lord can be sovereignly working things that we don't fully understand. Even a very righteous person can suffer sickness, disease, and death and won't be healed physically. That can happen. But the modus operandi is to confess sin to each other when we do wrong to one another. That's how we're going to get the relational healing. But then be praying for another when we're in tough situations, and especially when our bodies are sick, and the Lord may actually work healing in that. We're supposed to mediate for each other. Be constantly praying for each other. And then moving on, he's going to say, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed, and something really cool happened. Who's a righteous person? Can you tell me who is a righteous person? Those who are in Christ. You don't need the Pope to do this for you. You don't need Pastor Bruce, or me, or any of the elders. Now, should the elders pray for you? Uh, he has something to say about that, too. Let the elders come and anoint him with oil and, and all of that. Um, but the point is that the righteous is not some special elite group of believers. We are all priests of God and all have access and all can mediate for each other. However, can a Christian have their prayers hindered? Aha, uh -huh, you probably know already where I'm going. 1 Peter 3. Peter's really close to all these letters as well. Right after James, 1 Peter 3, he's going to talk about husbands and wives. And in chapter 3, verse 7, Peter has this to say. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Believers. He's talking to the elect of God. He brings up the elect of God earlier. 
He is talking to believers, and he is saying that a believer can have their prayers hindered. And in the case he's giving here, for the husband who does not live in an understanding way with their wife, your, your prayers will be hindered for that. And by extrapolation, that would not necessarily be the only way that our prayers could be hindered. But the righteous person then, whose prayer has great power as it is working, are those in Christ, on behalf of Christ's righteousness. But if you are finding, in, if your life is one that is not in accordance with living a godly lifestyle, that doesn't mean that you are sinless, but if the direction of your life is one of backsliding or being disciplined in the church, your prayers are hindered. God doesn't hear them. He doesn't answer them. The prayer of a righteous person is effective as it is working. And I like that word working as well. You know, we can pray for people and it's like, why, are, why is it not solved yet? It's not, I prayed for them to be healed and they're still sick. Or I prayed that their financial situation would straighten out. Six months later, they're still struggling with money. I prayed that I would be moved on from the bitterness that I hold in my heart and I'm still angry. Why? Why is it not answered yet? But, back in James, he doesn't say that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful right then and there and only then. It says as it's working. It has to work. God is going to answer prayer in his time. Things have to work out and it takes a process sometimes. We don't see the answer right away. But when you look back years later, it's like, okay, I saw how God was using that. And that was when this happened. You see how it all worked out. But it takes time. It has to be working. That's active. It's continuously working. The things that are hanging you up right now and are very stressful in your own life, if people are praying for you and you are praying about it, God is working. If you know the Lord, prayer of a righteous person is powerful as it's working. And this is why it's really important, even in our own worship service, that we are constantly bringing people before the Lord. And that's what we do in our pastoral prayer of confession. Or just the pastoral prayer, I think, is our official title for it. But in that prayer, there's multiple things that should be going on. But some of the basic ones is confession of sin. He is corporately, uh, we are joining our voice with him, be it Bruce, Ken, Mark, whoever's doing the prayer. They are confessing our sin. We have fallen in word, deed, and attitude, action, all of this, and we need your forgiveness. Forgive us, Lord. We've missed the mark. That's our prayer of confession. And that, that's a big part of the covenantal structure. We confess before God, and then we bring our needs as a body. This is why we pray for those who are shut in those who are sick, those who are wounded. We, we bring our requests before God, and the Lord acts in response to those prayers in his time. So our prayers are extremely important. Um, even uh, here in the office, this is, a, this is our bulletin, or, or our uh, directory, sorry. This is our directory. It's an out-of-date directory, but it's a directory nonetheless. And we get together every week, as staff, and we, we pray through this directory. Not the whole thing, but each of us prays for two of you. So, this past week, we restarted at the beginning, and I prayed for Mark and Donian, and I prayed for the Arthur family. Because that's where they were in the directory. And then the person after me prayed for the next two people, and then the, the Bowers got prayed for, and we just keep going. And when we're done, back to the beginning. Do it again. 
Every single person who is a member of this church or is a regular attender or is in this directory gets prayed for. Every one of you. And I believe that some of the things in your life that goes better or is more blessed, the more positive parts of your life, are because you have people praying for you. And when you pray for others and they're in a tough situation and it's still not solved, you keep on praying. The prayer is working. It's going in God's time. It's a very important thing that we do. This is an idea that's important to remember because it protects us from elevating Christian heroes to venerated status above the rest of us. There are some who think that you need to get the prayers of dead people. And that is not biblical. But this protects us from that because there's no special people who've got all this excess merit who you need to get their prayers for in order for God to do something, like buying him off with somebody who's done all these good works. God answers prayer because of his son, Jesus Christ. And through Christ, he's got this love for us and he shows us shalom and he shows us his grace, his kindness. And he will answer prayers for us. But we don't need to enlist some spiritual elite professor or a hotshot pastor to be the one who prays for you. The prayer of any righteous person is just as powerful. Just as powerful. So we don't need to go to Southern California, go find John MacArthur and say, oh, you praying for me, that's more powerful than if my elders prayed for me. In fact, you're supposed to get your elders to pray for you, not go travel to find a celebrity pastor to pray for you. And so this protects us. Don't elevate us. Don't elevate any of us. None. Not a pastor, not a teacher, not a YouTube guy. None of us. Don't elevate us. We're all priests, the priesthood of all believers. It's an important thing. Okay, so that's a bit on prayer. Let's go to characters and setting on page 15 of your notes. Before I get there, any comments on that, by the way? Any comments, questions, anything on your mind about that? I have one. So if the, the power of every prayer is the same, why do we get multiple people to pray? Why isn't one person good enough? Hmm. Anybody want to try to answer that one? I think there's a little bit of uh, um, love from the Lord when he sees multiple. He sees that there is a genuine care for that individual. So it's not just a direct one but a, a multiple, uh, there's more, there's sense, in the Bible it talks about there's sense of um, greater character when you have a multiple, in regards to even elders, in regards to uh, more people praying. So God likes to work in multiplicity? I think there's a sense of that in Scripture. Hmm. I was going to say something similar to what Owen was saying. Now. God is there when there's more than one in prayer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two or three are gathered. Yeah. I think too because he tells us to love one another, and that showing love by praying, you know, not just one of us. Well, okay, well I'll pray for them, and you go pray for somebody else. Let's pray together. Mm-hmm. Show that love and unity, like it is like God, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. They're united as one. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> showing love for one another, really. Let's pray for one another. 
So God could answer the prayer of just one person. But we're showing a lot of Christian faithfulness. This is our love for one another that we're multiple people, multiple times going to bring, going to pray about this. Yeah. Is there a point where we can take it too far? I think we still put numbers on it. <laughs> like, like if we need 50 people here or else this is not going to work. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Good point. That's right. Jesus had something to say about the hypocrites and how they pray. Yeah. What did he say? Okay. So there's a part where we can take it too far. So if we're praying for something every single day, 20 people need to pray all in a row, and we're going to do the same thing tomorrow and the day after, does God not know what you need before you even ask? He does, but he still wants us to pray. But we can take it too far. We can be like the hypocrites. We can be like those who stop in the street to do our prayers and be heard by everybody. That doesn't happen in public square these days much, but it was a big thing back then. Now people like to be seen by their piety through other stuff, through slogans and through hashtags and through groups you identify with. And it's a different way. Same idea, though. Public hypocrite, um, hypocrisy. Public hypocrisy. Yeah. Do you share another passage? Chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, talking about the great tribulation that he and, he and his fellow workers felt, that they were sparing for life itself. Verse 10 reads, He, that is God, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also, now he's addressing the church, you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. It's for the benefit of the people praying, that they're a part of it, that they too hear of their answered prayer and give thanks and glory to God as a result. Great passage. Very good. It won't take me long to go through characters and setting, and then next week we'll start at notes and application. Uh, the characters here in 4 through 7, there's only two really mentioned besides the, the Trinity, but uh, Paul is being mentioned. He is praying for Philemon specifically. Comfort from your love, my brother, verse 7. He is referring to the guy he brings up right in, the, in verse 1 to Philemon. I thank my God in my prayers for you because I hear of your love and faith you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Uh, the other character here being Philemon. So Paul is praying, he's in prayer for Philemon specifically, but his prayer, there's a lot of things we can pull out of this in terms of general applicability. We can pray in a similar way. We can learn a lot from this prayer about how to pray for one another and so it's generally applicable to the saints, but he's talking to Philemon specifically. And Paul is deeply moved by Philemon's effective Christian witness. He's clearly a, a pretty godly guy. Uh, we know that. Uh, he's thanking God. He hears of the love and faith that he has towards the Lord Jesus and the saints. Prays that the sharing of your faith become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Philemon's been refreshed. The saints have been refreshed. Or refreshed. 
Uh, he's got love and faith. Like, his Christian witness is effective. But Paul's going to pray that it becomes more effective. And so Philemon here is a sincere, loving, and loyal follower of Christ and the church. We have no reason to believe that Paul is just blowing smoke or, or trying to prop him up or something like that. Like, no, this, we have no reason to believe that. He's a genuine, loyal follower of Christ and the church. And then, uh, so he's going to be praying that the sharing of your faith become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that's for us in Christ. There are translational issues in a couple of these verses, and it's really tough to translate these because the words can mean multiple things in, from Greek to, to English. But we're going to do our best to address that next week. But the point is, he already has a faith. It's already working, and he wants to see it become even more effective. And that's what we're going to pick up on next week, is that we have all things in Christ given to us. We have knowledge. Even if you don't feel very smart, in Christ you are given knowledge of the Lord. And we have the fruit of the Spirit. Remember what the fruit of the Spirit are? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Even if you are not a very kind person, you have kindness in you. It may not be fanned into flame very much, or it might be doused under a hose of water, but objectively speaking, you have the fruit of the Spirit in you. You can be kind. You can be a person of peace. You can be a loving person. There's no, that's just not my gift. <laughs> that's the idea we're going to pick up on next week. Uh, any final comment before we pray? Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here. I thank you for the scriptures and how much we can learn from them. I pray that you would prepare our hearts for worship. Let us have thankfulness and gladness in our hearts. Let us pray for one another as mediators, as priests. Let us bring one another before you, our requests, our wants, our desires, our hurts, our pains. Let us be faithful in bringing the saints before you. In your name, amen.